Genesis 50, verses uh, 15, and we'll work through uh, the rest of Genesis chapter 50 this morning. Uh, I had a very significant week this week. Um, I celebrated nine years of being married to my beautiful wife, Jess. Uh, It was nine years ago, and um, I love it because I'm able to think back and reminisce on things that we used to do together um, versus things that we do now. And uh, look at, go back and remember little letters I've written her or scavenger hunts that we've put together for each other and ticket stubs to first dates. And I'm going back and I'm remembering movies that I used to watch. I won't even list them because it will date most of you out of this room. Um, but I um, loved it. You know, I was able to think a lot about this week about my college days because when I met my wife um, nine years ago or 11 years ago is when I met my wife. And uh, I was able to, to really think back in my college days. And one of the things I really miss about my college days is meeting different people and why they are in school to study for whatever they want to do. And so one thing's in Bible college, though, I would meet people uh, that wanted to do ministry, obviously, and that's why they're there. And so I would meet people who, they want to be a pastor of a church, they want to be a biblical counselor, they want to be a missionary, they want to, you know, just do whatever it takes to make the gospel known throughout the world. And so how that worked practically is that you would meet very interesting people that want to do very interesting ministries. You'd meet someone who's really passionate about puppet ministry for whatever reason, and you would, you would meet all kinds of different people. And the most, one of the most unique ones that I met, I'll say the most humorous one I ever met, was a guy. We were in a car together, and we're driving. Um, there's about four or five of us in, crammed in this car, and we're asking, you know, what do you want to do with your life? How, how do you want to make much of Jesus in your ministry, whatever? And we all shared, and this guy said, well, my goal is to be on the power team. Now, um, the, the, the power team, most of you don't know what that is, but the power team is a team of guys who look like they're on steroids. Um, they go around to different churches, and they break bricks over their head in the name of Jesus, and they'll take a They'll take a license plate like this guy and rip it in half, and they will do all these things to, to wow you. And they take, uh, of course, the famous, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength way out of context. And they say, like break a board over my head or like blow up a, a hot water bottle or whatever it is. They will do all of these things. Now, now, for that guy to tell me that he was wanting to be in the power team, look, if that's what you want to do, fine. The problem with that guy wanting to do the power team is that he was all of 150 pounds soaking wet and about five foot eight, all right? So I don't see him being on the power team anytime soon. So I asked him, because here's the thing, if you throw something weird at me, I'm going to take, I'll, I'll bite, right? I'm not the kind of guy that just glazes it over and then we'll talk about something else. I was like, okay, so tell me what it's going to look like for you to be on the power team. How many years do you think it's going to take? He says, oh, I'm, a, I'm probably a year out. I'm like, a year out from breaking a pencil, but like, I don't see you doing this anytime soon. So I began to ask him way more questions and just realized he had no plan whatsoever to be on the power team. He had no idea what it meant. Now, you can take that photo down so everybody's not comparing him to me. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I remember seeing, and, and I was thinking through this, it's like, I wonder how many other people um, have this idea of ministry or of life, and they have no real plan of what that actually looks like. Maybe some of you are really good planners. Maybe you have a five or ten year plan and you're good with charts and graphs and 
pie charts and all those things, and you know how, where you want to be in five years, maybe 10 years, maybe you know how much money you need to make, the education that you need to have, how many kids you want to have, maybe you're already there, maybe you're thinking more five-year, 10-year, I'm thinking about retirement, I'm thinking about what, what I need to have in place to retire, and you're thinking through all of the things that need to take place for your plan to happen. Maybe some of you are not that developed with planning. Maybe your plan was to get up and come to church this morning, not the 9 a.m. because it's way too early. So you come to 11 a.m. and you think, that's my plan, and my plan after this is eat. And I don't know what whatever God has in store for me after that, I don't know. Maybe that's what a lot of you are at this morning, and that's fine as well. But I want to tell you, regardless, uh, you can plan well, and I encourage you to plan well. Um, regardless of how we plan, it is really God who creates our steps, and it's really God who's sovereign not only over our plans, but also over the outcome of our plans. He's sovereign over all that. And this is a constant beat in Scripture that you consistently see that God is the one who allows and causes our plans, and he also He also works out the consequences of those plans. So let me just share a a couple of Old Testament texts with you so you can understand how God works with our plans. Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his what? His steps, right? Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs twenty twenty four. A man's steps are from the Lord. How can he understand his way? So you're seeing this constant pattern in Scripture that although we make plans and we try to arrange our life in this life in this neat way, hopefully you're not trying to arrange your wife in a neat way, but your life in a neat way and you're trying to organize your life, or maybe not organize your life, it's still, God is still sovereign over those things. And what we see in the life of Joseph is really a story and a beautiful picture of how God's sovereign plan absolutely works. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, a quick, brief summary of what we've seen so far in the life of Joseph and what kind of happened between where we left off last week, which is Genesis 39, all the way up to Genesis 50. So I'm going to give you a quick review um, summary of what we've seen, and then we'll kind of grab what we, we'll see what God has in store for us in Genesis chapter 50. What you see in Genesis 37 is where we begin, we began the story. Joseph is a 17-year-old kid, and his brothers hate him. He's favored by his father. He's favored by the Lord. The Lord is actually giving Joseph, the 17-year-old, uh, dreams that his other brothers will bow down and worship him. Now, I don't know how things work in your family, but I can guarantee you that this would not go well in my family. Much of my family is here this morning, and I can say, listen, I had this incredible dream that God told me that all of you will be worshiping me. Now, this happened, and his, this 17-year-old came and told his brothers, he, here he is with his fancy coat on, got Skittles colors, he's going up, he's telling his brothers, you're going to bow down and you're going to worship me. And now, here's what happens, they begin to hate him, and they actually try to plot his death, they're going to murder him. And so what happens, though, one of the brothers, Reuben, he decides this is not such a good idea, we shouldn't murder him, that would be wrong, so we'll do something a little bit less evil, we'll sell him into slavery, And so what they do 
is they take his fancy jacket and they dip it in the, in the blood and they hand it to their father, Jacob, who loves them. He's also called Israel in the Bible, Jacob or Israel. And they say, your son is dead. And he is heartbroken. He is agonizing over the death of his favorite son, Joseph, which is part of the problem. Then you see in Genesis 39, we're told that God brought Joseph to Egypt and then he would he developed some sort of a work ethic because in Genesis 37 that dude is not lifting a finger he's watching his brothers work he's got his fancy preppy clothes on his brothers are doing everything and now he's developed some sort of a work ethic in Genesis chapter 39 and his character is beginning to show that he is a man who loves God And Potiphar, this rich, wealthy ruler, allows Joseph to live in his house and not only live in his house, he allows him and he entrusts him to everything that he has. Now, another problem that comes into the picture is that we were told last week that Joseph is a handsome guy. I think we compared him to maybe a Ryan Gosling. I've heard he's good looking, right? And then we also discovered last week the only reason why Ryan Gosling is good looking is because he has beard, and all men with beards are a little bit more attractive than men who are not. (laughs) And so here you have this picture of Joseph, who's a handsome man, living in a house that he's entrusted to. And then his the, the guy who has hired him, He's gone on vacation. He's gone on a a business trip. And then you have his wife, Potiphar's wife. We don't even know her name. She then pursues Joseph. She pursues him every day. And what she's trying to do is she's trying to sleep with him. And then the text shows us that she is so aggressive because she's been doing this day in and day out. And Joseph resists the temptation. And what happens is she actually grabs his garment and she rips his clothes off. And then you have this picture of Joseph running out in the street in Genesis 39. He's buck naked and he's yelling. And then Potiphar's wife makes up a story that he assaulted her and that he's the reason why all this happened. He's the reason why he ran out. She wasn't, she was innocent. And what happens is then Joseph is thrown in prison because of what people thought or what she accused him of doing. And what you're seeing is this is all God's hand at work. God is the one who calls all of these things because we even see in Genesis 39, 12 times God's favor is mentioned in the life of Joseph. You even see the very end of the temptation of Joseph in the very end after he's already thrown in prison for all the things that he had done, which by the way, him being thrown in prison is is a gift because he could have been killed for if, if what he was being accused of actually happened. So here you have the end of Genesis 39, and the narrator tells us that whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it successful. And then we begin to see a trajectory of what that looks like. So in Genesis 40 through 41, Joseph is able to interpret the dreams of those who, was, those who were around him in prison. So much that Pharaoh, who's the ruler over everything at this point, acknowledges that Joseph has a special gift that he can interpret dreams. And then he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And so what does Pharaoh do? He gives him favor. And then he begins to allow Joseph to be a governor over how food would be distributed in all of Egypt. Ironically, God calls a famine to happen in Egypt. So now Joseph has to distribute food to people who are starving. And then the text brings us 
to Genesis 42 through Genesis 43, Joseph has his brothers come from Egypt. See how God works? His brothers who sold him into slavery when he was 17 years old, they have no contact with him whatsoever. He is presumed dead by his fathers, and probably even at this point, his brothers think he's dead as well. And here they are. They are begging for food because of the famine. And who do they have to go through to get food? Joseph. And here they are. They're standing in front of Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. So Joseph, he finds out through a series of questions and really sending them all over the place. He finds out that his father is, in fact, alive. And then he reveals himself to his brothers. And this is an amazing story. We'll, we'll even get back to that. It's Genesis chapter 45. But you have this picture where he then is standing before his brothers, and he asks about his father. And now, Genesis 46 through 48, he is united with his father. It's a beautiful picture. And the way that the narrator actually describes the way the father was, it's almost like he came back to life. He's sick at this point, but it's almost like he came back to life. And then Joseph requests that his father be moved near where he is. So now the family is kind of together. Then Genesis 49, you see, uh, I'll explain the weightiness of Genesis 49, but what you have is Jacob, Joseph's father. He blesses all of his sons as they're all together, and then he dies. In the wake of his funeral in Genesis 50, we see that Joseph is able to go to the funeral, which is a miracle in of itself because he's still a slave. But he's able to go to the funeral and pray over his father with his brothers there. So you have this whole story that's happened and unpacked, and God is sovereign over each detail of those things. When Joseph died, when, uh, or when Jacob died, when Joseph was tempted, when Joseph was given this incredible responsible, when God calls this famine to bring his brothers uh, to Egypt to beg for food, and how Joseph responded is really a reflection for how he grasped how God was at work in all of these things. So I want you to see that this morning. That's very important that you see that this morning. And now what you see is as his father dies, as Jacob or Israel dies, his brothers are wondering, what is he going to do now? Now notice what happens. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the, of the God of your father. Joseph wept. That's a very key phrase. I'll explain why he did that. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Now, now here's something I want you to grasp this morning. As his brothers realize that their father had just died, their first thought is, Joseph is going to get revenge on us. Because here's what they're hoping. They're thinking, because dad's still alive, he's not going to pay us back for all the things that, he's, that we've done to him. So certainly, when dad dies, 
He's going to now pay us back. He's going, to, he's going to punish us. He's going to put us in whatever difficult circumstance, maybe even double of what he faced. I mean, can you imagine? I want you to feel the tension of this text. Because here you have brothers who sold their, their younger brother into slavery, their favored brother into slavery. And they had made up a lie that he was dead. And now he has the chance to feed them and to clothe them. And there's, he's, this is Genesis 45. He's standing over them. And here they are below him, bowing at his feet. And he has any opportunity in the world to say whatever he wants to say to them. I mean, I would have told them, you're coming to me for food? Are you kidding me? You can go and pop some tags at the thrift store, right? That's what you can do, right? I mean, he could have come up with all kinds of creative ways to torture them. Like listen to One Direction for an entire year or watch episodes of Jersey Shore back to back to back. And that could have been a perfect way to torture these guys, but he doesn't do it. He, he actually responds in a very sovereign way in the way that he sees that God is at work in all of this. Now, this is very different than how most of us in this room, if we're honest, would respond. But look with me, if you will. If you hold your place in Genesis 50, you go back to Genesis 45. Notice with me how Joseph responds when his brothers are communicating with him and when he reveals himself to his brothers. Genesis 45, verse 4, it says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. And the famine has been in, the, in, in these two years. Uh, there have been yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Notice this in verse 7. Again, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but who? God. Can he overstate this enough? He, was made, he, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and the ruler over all the land of Egypt. So what is it that Joseph has that I don't, and that perhaps many of you don't have. He has this grip on God's sovereignty that is radical. And if you don't notice how many times that he's mentioned how God is the cause of this, God is the one at work, it's, it's at least four times in just a handful of verses. And then you see him Here, five chapters later, we're not even sure how much time has happened between Genesis 45 and Genesis 50. We do know that at this point, Joseph is in his mid-30s. And here he is, he's married, he's got kids. They would have heard this said to them in Genesis 45. And then in Genesis 50, they're now wondering and questioning, what's he going to do with us? Would you not remember what he said to you when you were at his feet? How did you forget the significant thing that just happened. How do you forget that? And so here, we begin to see how this all plays out in Genesis 50. Because this is the reason why he weeps. This is why he cries. Because he's weeping because he's going, 
How did they not know my character and how I understand the sovereignty of God in my life? Why would they think that I would harm them at this point? Why would they think that? And so here, we see this in chapter 50, or chapter 45. We go back to 45 and just think through what's happened. 45, you have them bowing down. There's a famine going on. Their father is sick. Their brother has now revealed himself, and the guy that they're asking for food is their brother, the guy that they had done great harm to. And if you go back to that moment, and then in that, he begins to speak of God's sovereignty in a massive way. God calls this to happen. God put me and has entrusted me to this role. God has sent me here. How did they miss that? Well, here's, here's what I think. I think perhaps they missed it because they have so many other dynamics that are happening in their life. Have you ever had anyone come to you and list off a bunch of things, and then in that list, they, they, they say something very significant, but you missed it because the list is just too overwhelming? I remember when I was a camp counselor, um, I was in upstate New York, and I had a, a bunch of kids to look after. And the way that um, the laws work in New York, if you're running a camp, you have to be with the kids 24-7. You had one day off a week that was eight hours, shortest day I've ever heard of. But you're with all these kids all day long, and you're watching them. And I had the age, the first week I did it, from five years old to seven years old. And so what you have in that age range are not only the kids that age, but also moms who are really worried. And so some moms, they'll come with like a clipboard and all the medical conditions and all the medicine he has to take and things that he can't eat, things he can eat, things he should eat. And I'd have all these lists. And then this one mother came up to me and I could tell she didn't have it together. All right. I can judge her now because I have kids. I couldn't then. Um, And so here you have this woman who was very, she, she just didn't, she, she started listing off all these things. And this kid had a lot of medical conditions. This kid had a lot of things he shouldn't eat. This thing had a lot of things he, she wanted him to eat, a lot of things she wanted him to do that week. And she's just listing them off, like, I'm going to remember her, them. And one of the things that she says in a list, she says, he doesn't understand English very well, but he also needs to eat bananas, and da-da-da, he needs to go to bed at this time. And then she said, in the quick little rundown of things, he doesn't understand English very well. So I laughed. I thought, ha-ha, he doesn't listen well. That's the issue. That's, you're just making joke. But then I realized later on that week, that kid didn't listen to anything I said at all. Like, I would tell him, hey, we're not going to go this way. He would blink and look at me with his eyes. He'd be blinking. And I was like, why doesn't he understand anything I'm saying? He's just a terrible kid. He doesn't want to listen. And so he has this meltdown one night, and he calls his mom on the phone. And then he gets on the phone. I'm, I'm talking, like, look, he's, he's having a hard time. He wants to talk to you. Hands her the phone. She's like, bonjour. He's like, bonjour. Blah, 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 blah. He just goes on and on. And he speaks, I mean, very, very good French. And I was like, wait, you could have told me that. I, I didn't know when you said he doesn't, I didn't put it together. Because you listed off so many things that that was like, it's kind of a key thing. Like, he doesn't understand English. He doesn't understand any English. He speaks French. That would be a way that you would say that to me. <laughs> but it was in a list, and I lost it in the list. It was gone out of my mind because she just listed it off. And so here you have Joseph's brothers. They're right before Joseph, and there's a list of things that are happening. There's famine. There's a sick father 
We're, we're wanting to know, are we going to get food? Oh, that's our brother. That's our brother we're asking food for. Is he going to kill us? Is he going to pay us back for all the evil? And then in that, you see sovereignty, and they miss it. They totally miss it because it's in this huge list of things that are happening. And so time goes by, and then you have Joseph, who could have done horrible things to his brother to repay him, but he doesn't. And he's weeping now because he's saying, don't my brother see that I have this view of God's sovereignty that is intrinsically different than theirs. And so he reminds them again in Genesis chapter 50 on how this impacts his life. Genesis 50 verse 19. Look at how he responds to his brothers after they wonder what he's going to do. Verse 19, it says this. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Now, these are just three verses, but there are so many things there. I mean, you have a couple of different themes going on here. One, you have the theme of justice because he actually says in verse 19, am I in the place of God? Which means he's saying God is the one who's the ultimate judge over the wrong things that you and I do. That's what he's saying in one little statement. He's saying, am I in the place of God? Am I the one who can judge you really? No. That's God's role. So there's a theme of justice there. The other one that you'll see is a theme of forgiveness because it says in verse 21 that he's, he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So here you have a warm heart around how he's been treated his whole life or how he's been betrayed his whole life toward his brothers. And now he's speaking kindly to them and he's comforting them. So there's a theme of forgiveness there. But I want to show you that these are not just themes that sit alone by themselves. They actually sit underneath a humongous theme of God's sovereignty. Because without God's sovereignty, we don't really have these themes. These themes don't even exist without understanding that God is in control of all things. We don't understand justice. We don't understand forgiveness without grabbing this big idea of what he's saying. And the big idea is really found in verse 20 when he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's saying everything that's happened in my life, all the bad things, all the good things, God is the one who's caused all of it so that whatever has happened bad in my life, I will ultimately see it as good because it's for God and what is for God is good for me. And so this is massive because he realizes that God did this and what God has is better. God is better is what he comes to. I mean, what a place to be in life and realizing the sufferings that you cause in my life, God. I realize through that that you are still better. What a huge weight lifted off our shoulders when we grab that reality. And you even see this throughout church history. You'll see it throughout characters in Scripture. There's no characters in Scripture that have a really deep, passion and heart for God that do not at some point face tremendous suffering, persecution, and trials. 
And we can go through the apostles. Every single one of them faced trials and tribulation. And we can even go through church history figures. You can, you can talk about Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, all of these men. And we can even go back even further than that. But most of what you'll see are men who deal with mental, physical, and the surrounding things that God has placed in their life have been incredibly intense and very difficult. And in the end of all of the sufferings and the pain and the agony and the death that they face, in the end they come out and they all agree that God is better than anything that this world can give us. Let's just even talk about Jesus for a moment. We've been talking about Jesus the whole time, but we'll talk about Jesus here in a specific way, all right? In the life of Christ, you see in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus Christ is baptized. The scriptures tell us that the Father is well pleased. You see this beautiful picture of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is like a dove, and the Father is saying his Son is well pleased. You have the Son being baptized. And so you have Jesus being baptized in this beautiful moment in Scripture, and then he's going to begin his earthly ministry. But what do you see in one chapter later in Matthew chapter 4? He's tempted. Now, the problem that I have with Jesus' temptation is verse 1. I'm just going to be honest. Look with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We'll have it up on the screen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. Okay, I know it's Sunday, but can we really be honest here? Does, do you have a problem with that verse? I have a problem with that verse. That seems very strange to me. The Spirit of God brought Jesus Christ into the wilderness so that he would be tempted by the devil. Anybody else have a problem with that? Or am I the only honest person here? It's very difficult, is it not? God's spirit is bringing Jesus into the wilderness. The whole purpose of him bringing Jesus into the wilderness so that he would face temptation. God is doing all of this. So it's not that God was like, oh, I didn't know the devil was going to be there. I had no idea. It totally shocked me. I was totally going to send you into the wilderness to enjoy the cactuses, right? But no, he did it so that he would be tempted. And then what Satan does is he begins to tempt him with, he says, everything that you see can be yours. And, but notice what happens. I, mean, I wish I could read the whole thing, but let me just show you verse 10 in Matthew 4. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. All of the temptation that happened in Jesus' life was so that in the end we could see what Jesus cherished above everything else, that God is better, that God is supreme, that what the Father says matters most to Jesus, that his obedience is perfect. And he puts him through temptation so that you and I could see that. You see that? Isn't that beautiful picture of what God is doing? Are you guys awake this morning? I think this is awesome, all right? So here you have whatever happened in the life of Christ, even to the point of his death, God was sovereign over every single part of it. The betrayal, the beatings, the mockery, God is sovereign all over all of it so that we would see that Christ is supreme. 
And then we look at the life of Joseph. God put Joseph through the ringer to show off his glory and his fame. And you even see in Genesis 39, I wish I could spend more time to unpack it again. There's so much here. But you even see in Genesis 39 when Jacob, Joseph's father, he blesses all of his sons. He's actually stating that they will be a part of really the 12 tribes of Israel. And who does he call out among his sons? Judah. And we learn later that Judah will create a royal bloodline. And from that royal bloodline will be born Jesus Christ. And so you look through this family history that's really crazy. And it starts with betrayal and lies and murder. And then we see Judah, who's the most sexually promiscuous out of all the brothers, God is going to use him to bring about the Son of God. So if you think your family's crazy, look at Jesus' family. It's way more crazier. That shows you how sovereign and how big God is. But let me just show you one more passage this morning that Joseph didn't even get to read. Meaning we have the New Testament scriptures to tell us even more about how significant God's sovereignty is. So let me just show you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. It's one of my favorite parts in all of Scripture. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says this to the people at the church at Romans. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Beautiful text. He's saying, The sufferings that I face are worth it because of the glory that God will show himself through that suffering. Beautiful. Now, notice how he explains it. If you skip down further in Romans 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, that's the key, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what he's saying is this. The same God that is sovereign over my salvation, who's elected me before the foundation of the world, that the Spirit of God drew me to the Son of God, the same God who sustains me through the work of his Holy Spirit, who sanctifies me, who grows me into a mature believer, and the same God who I will worship uh, forever in glory, amen. The same God who does all of those things in the work of my salvation uses suffering and difficulty so that I, in the end, will see that he is good. And then he also says in 828, beautiful, that all things that happen in the life of a believer work out for the good. And it only applies to believers. That's why I keep emphasizing those who love God, because it only applies to believers. So what's so significant about being a believer is not just getting to heaven. I know everyone talks about if you pray this prayer, you'll get to heaven. It's not even about that. That's a part of it, but it's not the whole story because part of the story is too is how we reflect the image of God, the work of Christ, the work of the gospel in our own lives today. And that happens through how we handle suffering and how we see God is doing this in my life for his good and his glory. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It actually means that sometimes it's very difficult. It doesn't mean that we don't 
mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't cry and doesn't mean that we don't have horrible days. But it does mean that with our dying breath that we'll say, whatever you caused in my life is for your good and for your glory. And I'm thankful that you've done it because it drew me closer to you. So how this practically plays out in our life, I'm going to just list a few things. One is we handle Satan and evil very differently. By the way, I believe that Satan is very real. I believe that he is at work. But we don't see it as a cosmic arm wrestling match of we don't know who's going to win this. It could turn either way. We know, first of all, that Christ has already won. And we also know that there's nothing that Satan can do without God's permission. That's Job. And we see it throughout Scripture that God is using Satan's evil and sin ultimately for his glory. And that helps us see it differently because if we're looking at it as a yin and yang or a wrestling, arm wrestling match that we're not sure the outcome, we become, we panic. But greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And that is the hope we have in Christ. The other thing I want to show you, the second way that this plays out practically is whatever has happened to you, whether it be hurt or pain or sickness or death, ultimately it is God that we have to deal with. It is God that we actually have to work through these issues, confess these issues with, tell God, this is where I'm struggling, God, I'm frustrated, I'm angry that you would put this in my life, that you would allow someone to betray me or to hurt me in this way. It is eventually God that we deal with, that whatever man intended for evil, that God intended for good. And when we get to that point, this gives us a biblical grid on how we as believers handle suffering and hardship. And then lastly, or one of the, the third thing, is that we see forgiveness through the filter of God's sovereign work. Meaning we can look at forgiveness, and oftentimes forgiveness, by the way, is misused in scripture. Because it's like people say the word all the time, you for, or the phrase all the time, you forgive and you forget. But none of us do that, right? Okay, good. More honest people than I thought, good. And the problem with that is it's not really something, an attribute that was given to us to do in the first place. It was something that God does. That God forgives and God forgets. But here's the thing when it says God forgets, it's not like, because I always struggled with that when I was a kid. I was like, God forgets, so then he's not God anymore if he forgets things. Like, that seems odd. And so it's not like he gets some sort of divine amnesia and he just no longer remembers what Ben did last year. Here's the, what it means. God doesn't bring a charge against me anymore. That's what that means. God no longer takes sin and puts it in my face and says, you've done this wrong, you owe me, because Jesus paid the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us. So we don't sit under the wrath of God anymore. So he forgets in that sense. So how then do we look and how do we respond to that gospel truth underneath the veil of God's sovereignty? Here's what that means. It means everything that he's placed in your life 
has ultimately to bring you to the truth, to remind you of the forgiveness that he has shown you through Christ. And so everything, this changes everything. But our hope is, and lastly, that this will give you a sense that God is better. Every time I suffer, I'm reminded this world is not my home and what God has in store for me is better. He will get the glory for it either here on earth and I'll see it or he'll get the glory for it forever and ever. Amen. So my prayer is this morning that we'll get to a point where we see in spite of everything in our lives that God is better. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us this morning. For those in this room who might be suffering.